who you are defines how you build. This is the Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you by Stanford eCorner. Welcome YouTube and Stanford communities to this week's Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Seminar. I am Ravi Balani, a lecturer in the Management Science and Engineering Department at Stanford and the Director of Alchemist, an accelerator for enterprise startups. And the Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series is brought to you by STVP, the Entrepreneurship Center, the, the Entrepreneurship Center in the School of Engineering at Stanford, and BASIS, the Business Association of Stanford Entrepreneurial Students. Today, I am thrilled to welcome Reshma Saujani to ETL. Reshma is the founder of Girls Who Code, a nonprofit but high impact and highly socially profitable organization, which is all about closing the gender gap in tech. They are building the world's largest pipeline of female engineers, and their programming has reached hundreds of thousands of girls around the country. Reshma graduated with a degree in political science from the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, and then went on to earn graduate degrees from Harvard's Kennedy School of Government and a JD from Yale Law School. From there, she pursued a legal career while also becoming active as, a, as an organizer in the Democratic Party. And in fact, in 2009, Reshma decided to run in the Democratic primary in, the, in New York's 14th Congressional District. And while she ultimately lost the race, and if you haven't seen the TED Talk, you definitely should check her TED Talk out, um, that experience also sent her in a new direction. And three years later, she founded Girls Who Code. Reshma is also the author of three books, Brave, Not Perfect, Girls Who Code, Learn to Code and Change the World, and Women Who Don't Wait in Line. Her fourth book, titled Pay Up, The Future of Women and Work and Why It's Different Than You Think, comes out next March. And her TED Talk, as I was mentioning before, which is Teach Girls Bravery, Not Perfection, has more than 5 million views, and you should definitely see if you haven't already. Um, she also most recently founded a new project called Marshall Plan for Moms, which we'll also talk about hopefully if we have time as well. All of which is to say we're very lucky to have the opportunity to learn from somebody who's fused the entrepreneurial spirit with a real passion for social impact. So please welcome Reshma. Reshma, welcome to ETL. Thank you for having me. It's so great to be here, Ravi. It's, it's, it's really an honor to have you. And I'd love to start off just with you as a founder and your founder journey and the origin story for Girls Who Code. Um, because correct me if I'm wrong, but your founder journey started in your mid-30s and everybody's founder journey starts at a different time and the founder bug can bite them at a different time. But you spent over a decade in politics and activism and law. And then in your mid-30s, you decided to be a founder and start Girls Who Code. Can you talk to us about why that was the moment in time for you to be a founder and how you decided to start Girls Who Code? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a great question. I'm like a weird person to have started Girls Who Code because I'm not a coder, right? Uh, I didn't major in computer science. I was a poli-sci and speech communications graduate. I'd never built anything before. I mean, I'd started things. Like I was always like the president of my debate club. You know, I started campaigns. I organized, you know, I organized in politics, but I had never started a nonprofit before. And I came to Girls Who Code because in 2010, um, I was in this job that I hated, like in a life I didn't want. And, you know, I am a pretty religious person and I've always known what my dharma is, which was to be a, you know, a leader servant or a servant leader. And here I was as a corporate lawyer working in finance. And I kept thinking like, this is not servant leadership. 
Like this is not what I'm meant to be doing in my life. And sometimes when you make these huge pivots in your life, it's almost when you're at the, at the bottom. And I'm certainly that person. I hit rock bottom and then I make huge shifts. And I was pretty, pretty rock bottom. And I remember calling my father and saying, dad, I got to quit. And I remember him saying, finally, Betta. <laughs> you know, my parents were refugees. And so, so many of the professional decisions that I had made up until that point was for them, was to help them and, and meet their sacrifice and their struggle. And, but that was so, most of the time in opposition to what I felt like my destiny was and my purpose was. And so getting that permission allowed me to quit. And instead of getting another job I was going to hate, I decided to run for United States Congress. And Ravi, I was the first um, South Asian woman to ever run. I had no idea what I was doing. I remember we raised like $50,000 from Indian aunties who were just so happy the Indian girl was running for office, but we were off to the races. And I thought I could meet every voter, shake every hand, and I'd win. And didn't happen that way. I lost spectacularly. I mean, it wasn't even close, like less than 19% of the vote. I was broke. I was humiliated. You know, I'd pissed off everybody in the Democratic establishment. But, you know, when I woke up the next morning, the big aha for me was like, wow, this failure didn't break me. And I know we're going to talk about that later. But the other thing was, it was like, I'm not going back to that life. Like, I'm going to keep making change. And even though I wasn't elected to make change, I'm going to make change. And when I thought about, I kind of said to myself, well, okay, if all the problems Richmond you saw on the campaign trail, What's the one problem that really, that, that you can't stop thinking about? And the problem that I couldn't stop thinking about was when I would go into classrooms, because when you're running for office, you meet a lot of kids, and I would go into computer science classes and robotics classes, I would just literally see lines and lines and lines of boys who wanted to be the next Steve Jobs or Mark Zuckerberg. And there wasn't a girl in sight. And because I had never experienced that in college, I was like, what's going on here? Like, I know Silicon Valley was a boys club, but like, I didn't know that club started in high school and it pissed me off. And the reason why it pissed me off was because I knew that those jobs paid well. I had a dad who was an engineer who kept telling me to become one so I could go, you know, buy a home. So the fact that women and girls, people of color were not going into this field that was incredibly lucrative that would allow you to march into the middle class didn't make sense to me. And that's why I decided to start Girls Who Code and try to start solving that problem. That is so, there's so much to unpack there. I know we're, hopefully we'll get time to do so, but I love, first of all, that lesson on just knowing there's this conflict between the, what the external world is telling you and what your internal voice knows to be true um, and, and when to listen to the internal voice um, and push forward. Um, and, and so that was a, that's a powerful moment when you decide to take the, you know, take the red pill and listen to what you need, want, want to do versus what whatever society, however you're defining that, is telling you what to do. Um, can we talk then about what life is, what, whether you need that, that problem that you identified, to, which was the kernel for Girls Who Code, um, still do you feel if that exists today? Because um, let me just explain to the, to the students the full scope of the problem. There's a fascinating statistic on your website that in 1995, 37% of computer scientists were women. And by 2017, that number dropped to 24%. And by next year, it might drop to as low as 22%. That seems to suggest that despite the Me Too movement, all the work that's being done on diversity, equity, and inclusion, and gender equity, that this, the gap is actually getting worse. Is that true? 
Is that, are those numbers accurate? I mean, the numbers are accurate, but it's it's complicated, right? Because, and this is why I'm so fired up about what's happening with women in the workforce today is that, you know, to set it up, right, the world's first programmer was a woman. In the 1980s, if you went to any robotics class in the world, it would have been half boys, half girls. And so we were at parity up until almost, I mean, close to parity up until 1995. And then we started pushing women out. So at the lows, it was almost, you know, 18, 19%. And so the workforce is one place to look at the pipeline problem, but also college classrooms are another. You know, Stanford University is almost at, is at parity, essentially, in their engineering departments. But there was a dip, you know, in the 90s and 2000s. And so the pipeline work was getting young girls to say, STEM is, you know, computer science is something that I care about and something that I want to do. So getting them degrees is one thing, but then getting them jobs and having them stay in those jobs is an entirely different problem. And we are failing at that. Silicon Valley, the tech community is absolutely failing at that. We did a survey with Accenture that said women by the age of 35 uh, in tech will leave. 50% of them will leave. So we can't really tell what the full potential of those numbers are because the attrition is so high. Right? And, uh, yep. 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 Uh, um, uh, and, can, and can we, is, is, is the root of that issue, the thesis that you talked about in your TED talk on teaching girls bravery, not perfection? Well, I think, um, I think it is, I think it is, it, it depends on what stage, right? So I think what I talked about in my TED talk is that girls are learned to be, learn to or learn how to be perfect and not brave. And so this idea of coding where the semicolon's in the wrong place, you know, I tell the story about how, you know, women in CS majors will come to, you know, their, their office hours and say, I'm broken. I can't figure this out. And the guys will come in and be like, the computer's broken. You know, not, I did something wrong, but the computer is broken. Right. So it goes back to this idea of perfectionism and iteration. And if you're comfortable failing and doing something over and over again, you don't think it's personal. So I think the problem in college is about, you know, is about perfectionism, but it's also about culture, right? You still have a very bro culture. You know, many universities have no CST or engineering teachers of color or women, right? And there's a lot of microaggressions that are still made in the class. So, so it's, it's all very, again, I don't think you can point to one it's- thing. It's, and there's so many different variables that we have to attack. And I hate, I don't want to blame women, right? It's not our fault, right? And, and, it, it, and in fact, like our, our whatever you want to call perfectionism is like this piece of it. But if we could actually fix culture, if you could fix broken racist sexist structures, you know, if you could, you know, if you could fix that, we would actually make a lot of progress. But there's a reluctance to fix that because we still believe that we live in a meritocracy and we don't. And and so may, is that the first step is acknowledging that it's systematically non-meritocratic? Yeah, I think the first step is acknowledging that people don't give up power easily. Like, you know what I do now, Ravi? So if you go look at the top 10 universities and you look at their CS degrees and you look at their engineering degrees, and you look at the gender ratio, we're almost at 50%. Carnegie Mellon, MIT, Stanford, Berkeley, right? You're, you're between 42 to 50%. Then you look at the engineering departments at Facebook, at Google, at Microsoft. Why are you still sitting at 19%? Like, if you, it should match 
the gender ratio of the very universities that you recruit from. It doesn't make sense. So like when people say to me, oh, I just want to find talented female engineers, I literally carry, because I got the class list, you know what I mean, of everyone and say, really? Because look at her and her and her and her and her. So something's not adding up. And I think we just have to now start speaking very honestly about what that is. And I think and so, what that is, is that people don't give up power. Go ahead. Well, uh, let's, I don't want to um, overstate, I don't, I don't want to gloss over that. Is it, What it is, is that people don't give up power. Yeah. I have a list and list of women who are 4.0 majors at MIT that can't get an internship at Google because they couldn't, they weren't qualified. So who's and, doing, who's, who's doing the interviews? What are the things that they're looking for? What are the thing? What are the biases that we have? You know, I, we did a survey right after COVID last year, and forty percent of our girls who code alumni had either had either faced or knew someone who faced some form of sexual harassment in the interview, right? And so, if it is systematic, um, you know, part of the spirit of this class is is the spirit of entrepreneurship, the spirit of the the change agent. Who can go in and create change? And I, and obviously I'm not a woman, but if you are in a system that is that is is systematically unjust, um, is the message that that you cannot change that status quo on your own, and you need to change the power structure first before you no. can? No, I have a lot of hope in this next generation of young men, in particular, and women. You know, I I went to. Uh, the Rochester Institute of Technology and RIT had actually made tremendous progress in closing the gender gap in their CS majors. And I went and spoke to the women in computing group. And when I was speaking to them, there was this group of three guys that were sitting in the back. And after I was done talking, I went up to them and I said, who are you? Like, I thought that maybe they showed up to like heckle me or, you know what I mean? It was something. And they looked at me and they said, well, Mr. Johnny, you know, we're, we're, we're the men who support the women in computing group. They had formed a club inside a club. And they said, you know, we know exactly what it's like that there's microaggressions made in the classroom, that when we go to an interviews that we have a different experience. So we feel like it is up to us to use our power, to use our status, you know, to use our privilege, to make things better. And, and to be honest, Ravi, because I speak to a lot of, a lot of, this is what I'm seeing in the next generation. That's why I'm hopeful. You know, even when you've seen you know, things happen at Uber. It was male engineers who called me and said, I, I'm leaving. Like, I don't want to work here. So I, I, I really do think that that change is coming and it's happening. But, but then is the takeaway that the fate of women is in the hands of men? Uh, or or is, there, is there a takeaway? And I just want to make, uh, because I think one of the, the takeaways also that I got from the TED Talk is, is that we have, the, the problem is not the pipeline problem from a female founders, the problem, or at least what I heard was a bravery deficit of, of teaching women to take more risk. Is that actually inaccurate? Well, no, or I think it's, a, I think it, this is, I think you have to give, so I, I think you have to change the structures and that's what we've talked about. How do you change power structures, right? And so there's a numerous things that you can actually do in academia and in the private sector to help change move faster. I would have liked to, for example, have seen, assume that there is a talent pipeline, that there are female engineers and engineers of color to hire. How, why are companies not hiring them? That's the first structural problem 
that needs to be solved. I don't think that there has been enough pressure put on companies to move faster. Most of these companies know what I ate for breakfast. And you're telling me that you can't solve the gender gap in tech. That is one. The second thing is, is as we're building, as we're changing that, you have to give women strategies to thrive in the culture as it is. And that's the bravery deficit, right? So you're in a room. And and can you explain just, the bravery deficit for people? Yeah, who so the, so yeah, the bravery yeah. deficit is like, you know, if perfectionism, because we've been socialized to be perfect, right? And so we'll go, let's go back to that. Like, if you look at, you sit on the, if you, I would say like, go to any playground in America and you'll see what I'm talking about. Like we encourage our boys to climb to the top of the monkey bars and just jump. But with our girls, it's like, be careful, honey. Don't swing too high. We start when we raise girls by wanting to physically protect them. You know, I have two sons. And so I live this, like my husband will just push over my 12 year old just for fun. And I know what he's doing. He's trying to toughen him up. And so that physical, you know, that, that way of physical coddling, coddling for girls extends into emotional coddling. So around eight or nine, if you go to gymnastics and you can't do a cartwheel and you come home crying and say, I don't want to go to gymnastics anymore. If you're a girl, we say, don't worry, honey, let me put you into swimming. If you're a boy, you'd be like, you're going back tomorrow. I don't care. So it's just like, so then you learn as a young boy, again, this psychological resiliency, how to fail, do it again and again and again. We don't learn or develop that muscle because we're coddled and we're protected. And you see the ramifications of that perfectionism on every aspect of our life. If you look at, you know, academia, studies show that when women declare economics as a major, if they get a B in a single class, they drop out, right? Whereas boys are like, I got a B, I'm running for president. I got an F, I'm running for president. Different implications. You see it in mental health. Young women suffer from anxiety, mental health, depression at twice the rate of young men. You see it in leadership, right? Studies show that, you know, men will apply for a job if they meet 60% of the qualifications. But for women, we don't even apply unless we can meet 100%. Literally, we have to check off every single box until we apply. So that is perfectionism, right? And so to me, the antidote to perfectionism is bravery, right? When you teach bravery, you're essentially teaching imperfection. I'm, I don't know how to do this thing, but I'm going to just try it. You know, I'm going to keep repeating my code over and over again until I, you know, I get the semicolon in the wrong place. You don't give up before you even try. And for me, teaching that bravery muscle in the sciences, where often you are the only one, or you have people questioning your ability to be there, is really critical. I'll give you a basic example of this. You know, studies show that men talk 80% more in meetings. And so I see this dynamic happen all the time. I'll give a speech and it'll be Q&A time. And I'll be talking about women in tech. First 10 hand raised, men, right? Before they even know exactly what they want to say, they're, they're literally hand, and where will, come, let's say it. But what are we doing? Women, we're perfecting the question. We're thinking about it, writing it down. We're asking a friend, hey, should I say that again? And, bef- and by the time we get a chance to raise our hand, I'm in my car home. Right. And so now the men in the room think we have nothing to say. And now we're pissed because Joe said the same thing that I was going to say, but now he's smart and I'm quiet. So it's again, like these dynamics are actually really big because I will say that for me, 
there are many times where I'll go home and be like, why didn't I just say what was on my mind? Why didn't I just raise my hand? Why didn't I sign up for that, you know, to start that company, to do that blog, to do that thing, even though I wasn't ready yet? But what about for the woman who says that's all true, but how do you reconcile that with what we were just talking about, about power, that the men have the privilege so they can afford to take the risks and fail because they're in this system that supports them, whereas the women aren't as privileged. And so it's not necessarily the rational thing to uh, fail because you can't fail as easily. Well, and that's absolutely right. And this is the hardest thing about my teaching because it is true. Failure is a privilege for men. We don't get that failure. But to fail is the only way you could become great. And when you think about like Serena Williams, I am obsessed with Serena Williams. She literally lives on the edge of her ability in a coach who's saying, do it again, do it again, do it again. Like to be great, you have to do it again and again and again. So if you have, if you don't get to build that muscle, if you don't get to have that experience, you'll never become great. But we live in a society where when women fail, we see this with entrepreneurship all the time. We're like, I don't know. She missed Q1. I don't, I don't think we could fund her. So it's not fair. So this is something, but just because it's not fair doesn't mean we can't change it. And so that's why I talk about this all the time to, and talk about failure as a privilege. How do we change that? How do we teach managers when you're going through performance reviews? We should not treat men and women differently for like the exact same mistake, right? And same thing when we're investing in, you know, I laugh about, you know, um, I'll just say it, you know, I laugh about my, you know, Andrew Yang, who ran for mayor. And, you know, he ran twice, lost twice miserably. But when you read about his race, it's almost like he didn't lose. For me, 10 years later, after I've built one of the largest women and girls organizations in the world, if someone is writing about me, they always talk about my losses that I, I did 10 years ago. And so he, you know, again, he gets to benefit from that failure and it not be a slight on his resume. Women don't get that benefit. And so what is your takeaway then from that experience? Is it, you know, if society is, is, is disproportionately um, penalizing you, do you take the takeaway from that failure then to dig your heels in deeper? And, Absolutely. And, and yeah, my takeaway is like, screw them. Because here's right. I don't care what you write about me. Because I, I, if I never lost my congressional race, I never would have started Girls Who Code. You know, if I never started Girls Who Code, I would never start. Every failure has given me so much. I look for it now, right? I'm like, <laughs> what can I try? And like, I know it's not going to happen because it teaches me so much. I, I don't even know how I could, like, I just, I couldn't even live life. I mean, that's a, and I sound crazy, right? But I'm that into failure, like I'm that into putting myself out there and learning from the mistakes. And so if everything is working out for you, it's like you just don't grow. And I want to I think that, that that is the shift is if you can get off on and, and you actually realize the thrill yes. um, that actually exists on the other side of that fear. Can I actually give you, though, a real life situation? Because this actually was a question that was posed to me by a Stanford student in my other class, 178. And I didn't know how to respond. And I'm curious what your reactions would be. This was a Stanford undergrad, female computer science major who was an intern. And I think many of our students right now, they're experiencing this power dynamic as interns. And she had this relatively simple but profound crisis where um, she was with a bunch of other male CS uh, engineers 
And they said that they felt physically nervous when they when she came to them physically to discuss issues. And so they asked if she could just present all of her issues over the message board, over over dig- digitally over the text. And she was asking me what should she do, uh, because the other males would talk to each other, but they asked her to send something digitally. She wants the job, so she doesn't want to disrupt the the situation. Um, but it's obviously something that's also uh, gendered. What would you do in that situation? I would disrupt the situation. I would say, okay, I appreciate your honesty, but you're going to have to get comfortable with my physical presence. Like, I think we just too many times bend ourselves and you may not get the job. You may not get the job, but I think we cannot keep bending to the will of, of what men need to quote, feel comfortable. And, you know, somebody said this to me once, even my girls who code programming, we've taught 450,000 girls to code. 10,000 clubs. And a lot of male engineers would say, thank you. This is the first time I actually got to work with young, with women. And it would make, you know, I was like, okay. But then I was like, okay, like now you're, you didn't have that experience. Now you're building it. And so it's, it's, we have to figure out how we work with one another and how we all feel comfortable doing that. But I, I, I do, I just, and I generally think that like we as women, because we're taught to be people pleasers, and to, you know, want to be liked, we're always apologizing. We're always saying sorry. We're always shrinking ourselves. We're always accommodating. And that's why the world knows how to operate without us. And we got to stop. Ooh, yes. Yes, that's good. But how, so how do you, because we don't teach that. Um, and I think in the moments when these things happen, your limbic system sort of takes over or there's, it, it, it's something where you sort of freeze in these moments when, when you're seeing sort of these, these injustices occur. Um, can you speak to how you, I mean, it's one thing to tell people to recognize the injustice. It's another to actually act. Um, yeah. How do you build that muscle um, if you feel like you're not there yet to build that, that bravery muscle? Yeah, I think you just, you, you build it, right? So what often normally happens is you're in a situation, right? Where somebody may say something to you and you're like, and you may laugh it off, which I've done and still probably have done last week. And then I'll go home and I'll be like, I cannot believe, you know what I mean? They said that. And I will just simmer about it. And be like, I can't, why didn't I respond? Why didn't I respond? And then I'll just keep saying to my husband, we talk to a friend about it and then I'll move on. But now what I make myself do is go back, even if it's a week later and respond and say something. And so you just got to practice that. Like, because I think it's like, if it doesn't come to you in the moment and it comes to you later, that's okay. You can still go back and say something and say it in a way that, that you feel comfortable. I now try, honestly, I try to say something all the time to everything, even if it's like I'm in like a line at spin class and people all, I mean, I feel like this happens to me as a brown person, like people don't see me. And so they'll just, you know, get in line in front of me. And normally I'll just be like, you know, but now I'm like, excuse me, I'm here. Like I'm here. See me. Right. And so I, I just make myself, I don't want to say, maybe it is confrontation. I make myself confront all situations. I think that is the best also is if you can actually just create these goals for yourself and almost make it like a, 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 a not a game, but make it as something that you sort of yeah. need to, to do. 
Can we talk about identity beyond just gender? So, you, you know, you talked about your brownness and you're obviously an Indian American, you know, you're, you're sort of an icon, I think, amongst Indian Americans. You're Gujarati, which is, for people who don't know, that's a region from Northern India. Can you talk about your relationship to other aspects of your identity beyond gender and how has that shaped the lens through which you look at the world? I mean, it's shaped everything about who I am. You know, my parents came here as refugees in the 1970s. Um, you know, they were one of the few brown families in our Midwestern neighborhood. And they did everything to kind of assimilate. You know, my dad changed his name from Mukun to Mike. <laughs> um, you know, they did it. You know, we, you know, ate Taco Bell and Pizza Hut at home. Uh, we didn't speak, you know, barely speak Gujarati. Like, you know, we, we really, it was really all about in the 80s assimilation. And, you know, and we saw the consequences if you didn't assimilate. You know, if my mom wore a sari to the Kmart, people would be people would make fun of her and say, "You born with that dot on your head." You know, my house was often TP'd uh, or spray painted. You know, go back to your own country. And I remember one morning after our house was spray painted, um, I came outside, and my dad was sitting there, and he was just quietly Cloroxing like the side of the house. And I remember, I think he was like humming. And I'm not one shred of anger. Like in his mind, it was the tax that you paid to come to this country. And I remember thinking to myself, I will never be like him. I will never just lay down. I will, I will fight. And so watching again how much they went through and the humiliations and the sacrifices and the discrimination and the jobs they did, all of it. You know, he barely talk. I feel like I'll know so much more. I mean, he just didn't even talk about it because there's so much love and reverence, right? Um, but that's, I'm everything I am because of that experience and because of the way that I was raised and, and the fact that I did grow up hiding my identity, wishing my mom named me Rachel instead of Reshma being in church with friends and being a Hindu and being like, Oh my God, I hope nobody asked me with the Bible. I mean, just having so much shame. And then, you know, I got beat up as a kid and then everything shifted. And then I was like, Oh, I'm owning this identity. And I <laughs> tell everybody about it. And it's, it's everything about who I am. And I think it was because, you know, you know, I we suffered like real, you know, from everything from physical violence to, you know, like everything, you know, because of the color of my skin. And, you know, there's a strong correlation actually between being successful as a founder and coming from an immigrant family. Um, and I think there are just these lessons that you can't help but learn that, that make you power through adversity, that it's also very powerful as a founder. Um, but Reshma, we do have right now an audience, there's about 450 Stanford students in this class. Uh, many of them are engineers and all of them are interested in entrepreneurship and innovation. Any advice that you would want to give them to think about their own roles in terms of advancing gender equity um, during their time in school or their careers? For many of them, you know, it's, they're, they're doing internships. And I think mo most people feel like when you're doing internships, you're at the bottom of the totem pole. You don't have that much power or clout. Can you speak to anything that you want to address to them? I mean, I think we're in a profound shift right now. Um, you know, with the great resignation and the labor shortage, there's a lot happening. And so we're reinventing workplaces. I actually think that we're going to see a trend towards a lot of power with employees uh, and in demand uh, because there's a demand for talent. 
So I think you can actually push companies to make the change on diversity in the numbers, you know what I mean, and the movement that we've been wanting to see for the first time if you just ask for it. You know, even in the advocacy that I'm doing for moms, so much of what we want is what dads want and what childless parents want, what young people want, flexibility, the ability to work remotely. And it's almost like those who are actually have the most amount of power are the ones who don't actually really need it. So quite frankly, you're a white guy. Like, I would love for you to be like, hey, what's your progress on diversity? Like, where are you trying to go in the next five years? How important is this? Like, I would encourage the people, you know, the white nation men to actually make, ask those questions and to push for that change. And can you talk about this Marshall Plan for Moms? Um, and can you talk about just also just in your personal life, how do you straddle being a founder and a mom of two sons? Um, and I ask that just because that is yeah. something that is a mission no, of yours. Ask me. I think um, it's important to talk about. Look, I mean, I think on the on the first thing I've been, I'm, I am, uh, my the next movement I am building or I'm in the process and I'm building right now or built is to, you know, basically fight for the economic participation of women in the labor market. So because of COVID-19, about 3 million women, mostly mothers have exited the workforce and mostly mothers of color. And it's because we don't have affordable childcare. We don't have paid leave. Um, we don't have a support structure. We very much see motherhood and parenting as your personal problem, right? The government, the private sector, they don't play a role, right? It is your personal problem to solve. And the thing is, is most Americans spend about 40% of their income on childcare. The United States has one of the most expensive, uh, you know, unsubsidized forms of childcare in any other developed nation. We're the only nation that doesn't offer paid leave, right? And so we have this declining birth rate, 50, you know, it's the lowest it's been in 50 years because people just don't want to have kids. They can't afford to have kids. But that's deeply problematic for any innovative society. And so when COVID, before COVID-19, women were 51% of the labor force. And now we're back where we were in 1989. And as we discussed at the beginning of our conversation, it is very hard when you lose that much progress to come back. It's not an on and off switch. You can have hundreds of billions of dollars of innovation, but it's hard. It's hard to lose that, much job, that many jobs and bring them right back. So the Marshall Plan for Moms is really a movement to help change that. One, culturally, how do we basically reimagine what motherhood looks like, you know, um, and, and, and that we create a society where women can actually move in and out of the workforce without penalty. Now, if you take more than six months off after you have a child, you lose 40% of your income. But for fathers, there's a premium for that. So that's just not right. And it's not good for our society. You know, secondly, I think how do you, you know, workplaces were really never built for women or for mothers. And so how do you change that? Like, how do you really, you know, build a workplace that like, has flexibility. And so if I want to go to a soccer game or pick up my kids from swimming or my kids sick, I can do that and not be seen as an unproductive, unambitious worker if I do that. How do only, you know, 70% of American men take less than 10 days off when they have a baby, right? And so how do we tie parental leave to performance reviews? I mean, men also, like, you know that if you do bedtime or you feed your children, you live longer. You don't have heart attacks. You don't have diabetes. It is good for, again, it is good for dads to be involved in that child rearing. So how do we think about gender equality at home and tie the two? Uh, and then finally, you know, the political change that we're trying to make. You know, we are banging our heads in Washington right now. You know, I was, I'm working on finishing my book. I have 10 more days to finish it. 
and, you know, going through again, the history, you know, of second wave feminism and women in the workplace and about how for so much of this, it's like the same fights we've been fighting for so long, you know, since the 1970s. And how do we finish these fights once and for all so we can get to equality? That's fantastic. Um, I know we don't, we won't have enough time to go through everything that I want to discuss, but I'm going to, I'm going to open it up to questions now from the students. Um, so the first question is, I love that you pursued a startup that you saw a need for, even though you didn't have strong expertise in the space. How did you tackle this learning gap to make sure you were helping these girls become successful in software? Mm, such a great question. I think that we think that to start a company, we have to be an expert. And I really think you just have to have passion for solving the problem. So when I learned that there's this gender gap in computer science, I was just passionate about it. And so I almost wrote a business plan and like a memo. And it really detailed when did this happen? Why did it happen? What are the interventions for closing the gender gap? And every day for two years, at breakfast, lunch, and dinner, I would meet with somebody and I would learn. You know, I would meet with educators to understand why there was a gender gap in K through 12. I would meet with, you know, those who had, who had basically doing their PhD in computer science. I met with, you know, founders to say, why aren't you hiring? What's going on? So I basically just learned and became a nerd on everything about women in tech and then figured out what the right intervention was. And so when I started Girls Who Code, you know, it was a pilot. I, I handpicked 20 girls. I put them in a conference room. I found this amazing woman to like develop the curriculum and we just experimented. And in the, and I thought, I remember with those first 20 girls, I paid them $50 because I thought that they would never like spend the entire summer. I bought them pizza every day, but not only did they learn how to code, they like blossomed and they learned, you know, and then they told their friends and then it, you know, and then it built and then it built and then it built. But, you know, I think the thing is, 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 is it's follow your passion for solving a problem, you know, and then second to get really nerdy and smart on learning about it. Because sometimes the best the best founders are ones that actually don't know much, much about the problem. So they're not attached to outcomes. They can actually come at it from a fresh perspective. And so people say this all the time. The reason why I was able to successfully build Girls Who Code and actually make a dent in this problem was because I wasn't a coder. And I didn't come at it with any bias or previous experience, but I also was honest that I didn't know what I didn't know. And I found the experts to come in and fill in those gaps. And, you know, to your point, there have been many people that have been trying to solve this problem that have failed. Um, when was the moment that you knew that Girls Who Code was going to be successful in having impact? Well, I think my first program, I knew that like I, I, the, I, the aha for me was that you have to connect coding to change making. And that was how you were going to ignite millions of girls to want to learn how to code. And that came to me in my first program when I invited my friends from the New York Immigration Coalition to come in. And the, the problem was, how do you use code to help undocumented students? And I just saw like the different innovations and the different apps and the different ways that girls were at, the, the girls in the classroom were actually going about solving this problem. And I was like, holy cow smokes, right? Like we can actually do this with climate and mental health and dyslexia and like, you know what I mean? And like, that is the connection because girls want to actually change the world. And so if you connect, connect technology to change making, you can get them hooked. So that was a big you know, aha movement for me. You know, the thing is, Ravi, I'm never satisfied. I still don't feel like girls 
made it. Like, I'm like, I, we, you still look at those numbers. Like, I'm not done yet. We're not done yet. You know, we still, the one thing I think do feel like check is we've built the pipeline. Like, no one can say, like, we've built the pipeline from K through 12 into college. You know what I mean? That we are, we have, we have done and are doing and we're on the right trend. Now the next fight is about getting, getting them hired and creating cultures that allow them to stay and flourish. Terrific. Um, next question. How do you prevent comparing yourself to others when you fail at something someone is doing better? You know, I, I think it's like reminding yourself the only person you're competing with yourself is you. And that doesn't mean that we don't feel envy, but I almost think that envy is a superpower and that you kind of like when you're, when you're, you look to where your envy is as to where that you're supposed to go. Does that make sense? Yeah. I, yeah. Yeah. It's your compass. I think it's the way it's, it's a gentle way of telling you where to go. Yeah. yeah makes sense to me. Um, next question. How has your experience with law and politics influenced the initial foundation girls who code and its current mission. How do you encourage and educate others to advocate for closing the gender disparity gap? I mean, I think for law and politics, I was never trying to build an organization. I was trying to build a movement. And I saw a nonprofit as just a structural way to basically go about doing that. And because I've been an organizer since I was, I led my first march when I was 13, you know, that allowed me to figure out how do you build a movement? And by building a movement, what I mean is like, I think to be a founder, you have to be able to tell a good story. You got to be able to stand up and like basically tell a story about what you're doing and what the world is going to look like. And you got to inspire other people to move along with you. And so with Girls Who Code, with everything, the colors we picked, you know, the t-shirts that we had, the logos that we had, the, sto the story was always about the girls and what would happen if girls learned how to code, that they would be healers, that they would be teachers, that they would be presidents, that they would be everything and anything. And once you told that story, people were like, sign me up. Where do I write the check? Where do I mentor? Where do I volunteer? And so my experience in law and politics and just quite frankly, public speaking helped me become a really good storyteller. And that's my superpower. And that's why even in the second movement that I built, you know, Girls Who Code has about 18% global name recognition, which is insane after 10 years. Marshall Plan for Moms has... 15% global name recognition after nine months, right? Which is really hard to do, but I knew how to do it because I did it before. And so that I think is like really like, and I wouldn't have been able to know how to be a good storyteller, how to be a big movement builder, how to bring people along, how to inspire them into action. You know, had I not had a career in law and politics. And if people, if you inspire people now and they want to start movements, um, is the structure of what you choose a nonprofit versus like a B corporation or a, a for-profit entity? Does that matter in in making that decision to in terms of your efficacy? Yeah, I think if you do it with integrity. I was, did we talk about this? I was thinking about you and I talked about this. Or we're thinking about this. I mean, I think a big problem that big tech did is they said that they were building movements when really they were trying to make money, and then the hypocrisy, right? Is what pissed people off. So I think for you, I think you should be really be honest about what you wanted to do. Like in this problem of solving the economic recovery for women, I could have built a company. There are a couple companies that are doing that in Famtech. I hope some of you actually 
build, you know what I mean, companies then. But I wanted to build a movement, you know what I mean? And so I think, again, it's being very thoughtful about what you want to build, not because of what you want to market and what's going to help you market your product, but what you actually want to build and put into the world. And can you talk about other trade-offs, though, with the nonprofit? Because I don't uh, know if we somebody. put enough attention on... Not, yeah. And can you speak to that a little bit about um, what are the pros and cons with a nonprofit that might not be intuitive, you know, upfront for a student? I mean, like, for, like you know, it's funny. Like, so, you know, for, for, for me, there's nothing charitable about teaching girls to code. And what was really... And every year, you know, I've raised 100, I've raised $100 million in 10 years, which is insane. Um, but... but Every year, I have to raise another $20, $25 million from scratch again. And so you have all the stress and building the budget and raising the money and begging people and not sure what they're going to do. And then you do it all over again and again and again. And so that is, even though you have a product that is where I've taught 450,000 kids. I've taught more kids to code than school districts, right? But I still have to beg for money to allow me to keep doing what I'm doing better than what the, what the government is doing. So that doesn't make sense. And so if I were to do it again, I don't know if I would do it this way. But the problem is, in, in a couple of years, a couple, I would say five years ago, I said, you know what, forget it. I'm tired of begging for money. I'm going to build a fee-for-service product because Girls of Code is offered to kids who can afford it and kids who can't afford it, right? Um, because we want as many, anybody who wants to learn how to code, we want them to code. So we thought, you know what? why don't we build a fee-for-service product that then we can actually charge families that can afford it so then we can subsidize our kids who can't afford it. Well, guess what? That failed because we had priced ourselves out of the market because we had flooded the market with so many free products that you actually could, like there will probably never be a coding for girls business that is bigger than girls who code because we (laughs) messed up the market. You know, and no one explained that to me, you know, 10 years ago. Um, well, you disrupted them. That's like a classic disruption. Yeah. But now, knowing what you know now, then for your next venture, are you still doing it as ah, a nonprofit? Yes, I am. And I just okay. said that because the mission is a nonprofit mission, right? So, unlike Girls Who Code, in many ways, you could argue that the mission could have been a for-profit mission too, right? And you would have subsidized because 50% of the girls we teach are on their poverty line. So for me, I always wanted to teach poor girls. And that is why I created a nonprofit. But I, I just think that you have to also think about what your revenue stream is. And, do you, and the good thing is, is I did know 10 years ago that I was fulfilling, I was essentially fulfilling uh, a need for HR departments and companies, because that was the model. We were building classrooms inside technology companies and we were going to recruit and then you were going to benefit from that. So I had, you know, I raised a hundred million dollars, which is really hard to do over 10 years. Very few organizations have done that without any government money from corporations because we basically were fulfilling, you know, a need for them. And we were almost like a subcontractor, right? In that. We're going to move on. I'll, the next question is, um, it's, uh, I'll read it. It's a, bit, it's, it's a little bit long, so I'll read the whole thing. You discussed how failures are often more consequential for women than they are for men. Do you believe that women should learn to fail in small ways, like their code being slightly off so that they don't tarnish their reputations? Or do you believe that they should go after whatever dreams they have without 
with despite the possible consequences? Whatever dreams you have, uh, hands down, hands down, because you know we have to start changing. Like you can change culture, and the cultural narrative is is that women can't fail, or when they fail, the consequences and the price for failure are bigger. But there's something magnetic, actually romantic, you know, iconic about male failures. Right? We love to talk about how many shots Jordan, Michael Jordan missed. We love to talk about Bill Gates and how many failures he had. But what's the female version of that? We don't have one. And so we have to change that. And I just think it takes time. And I don't think that we should let our dreams die on the vine until we wait for society to move along with us. That's great. Okay, next question. How do you pitch to big tech that the gender gap must end? Are they most willing are, are they mostly willing to work with you and your mission? As a woman in STEM, I can sometimes feel reluctant to enter a field where I am unwanted and sometimes set up to fail. What is your advice? Uh, I mean, it's always hard for people to come first and we're all coming first. Look, I, I don't, I go back and forth. I'm going to be honest. Um, when I started Girls of Code, I started with a like, let's work together and change this. And then 10 years in, I was like, you're not changing fast enough, so I'm going to throw bombs at you. Uh, and to be honest, it, and, 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 and that wasn't, that's hard, right? Um, and it's one of the reasons why, you know, I, one of the, one of the reasons why I also decided to kind of step down from Girls Who Code was because I could throw bombs on the outside, but maybe the person who's running Girls Who Code needs to still employ that strategy of like, how do we figure out how we work together, but we still tell the truth. And we were able to do that. I mean, we would joke, but every year we would count the millions of dollars we lost in funding because I told the truth and I could not stop telling the truth. I never will be able to do that and look the other way. So I just think that we have to continue to keep on trying to make them change. And I think the two ways we have to focus on is infiltration. I want to teach so many girls and there's such a need for technical talent that all they hire are women and woke men. Because I do think we also need to activate the men that are on our side to make these companies change. I think the second thing is, is that we have to, and you're seeing this happen at Apple, you've seen it happen at Google. People are starting to fight back, you know, and we're starting to build that muscle in technology companies because so many people came there because they thought that they were working for good. And they realize that they maybe aren't, but that, that, that it's not a lost cause yet. So I still think that you have to, you can't take yourself out of the game. You know, we got to, but we got to walk into the fight. Next question. Um, could you talk about what you think of affirmative action, particularly how it relates to college admissions? What I would you say to people who say it's unmeritocratic? I deeply support affirmative action. hundred percent, hundred thousand percent because I don't think that we live in a meritocracy. I think even as a South Asian woman, I have proximity to privilege because I have proximity to whiteness. And there's a certain amount of credibility. There's a certain amount of passing that I get, not based on merit, but based on the color of my skin. And so we just cannot pretend that we're operating in a meritocracy, period. And when will we know that we are, it is meritocratic? I mean, when you start looking at, you know, the poverty rates or the education rates, you know, or the segregation rates or the housing. I mean, it's just we don't live in an equal society. 
you know, but listen, I feel the same thing about, you know, I mean, I think it's, I think like there's other classes of people that are let into universities that are not people of color that get a leg up to, you know what I mean? And so it's, it's not just about like, we focus on, you know, race-based emissions as what we're trying to actually quote attack. But I think that like, we have to just acknowledge that there isn't a meritocracy at all in the entire university system. But why are we so focused on that? What is that one? See, that one upsets, like that one, even though I am not as a, as a South Asian woman, necessarily the beneficiary, you know what I mean? Of those practices, I, I support them deeply because I think that, you know, you, you cannot deny that if you are black or Latina in this country, that is, it is not the same for you. Like, it's just not, it's not, you don't have, you know, like even through this pandemic, how many of my students were sitting in Burger King parking lots trying to get the Wi-Fi? had one device between, uh, you know, a family of four, you know, or had to quit college because they had to take care of a sibling because their mother was an essential worker. I mean, it's just, it's not the same. And I think we just have to be honest about that and, 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 and actually be proud that we're trying to build institutions to make them more just and more fair. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Um, next question is when making decisions, how do you balance equity versus equality? And to what extent do you feel it is appropriate to have preferential treatment based on protected attributes in pursuit of your goals? I mean, I, I, I think that, again, it's kind of similar to the same answer that I don't, yeah. for example, believe um, that every every male or white male or Asian male that, you know, uh, is there because he, he's the best one. Like, I think that we have a lot of, I think white, we, we the conversation that we need to have in our society is about unearned privilege. And whether you're white, whether you're Asian, whether you are one of the favored class, you basically benefit from unearned privilege. And we have never wanted to have that conversation. The conversation that we've always want to have is about affirmative action, as if somebody is getting something that they don't earn. And I have, I've always felt that we've always, as people of color, as women, had to be twice as good, twice as great. Nobody has ever given us anything. But it's fact, those that benefit from unearned privilege that have been given things. But if you have, if you are just to push on that, if you, if you, if them, some of our students are in positions of power and they have to make a decision between driving a meritocratic process that said that the candidate that they should hire or, you know, the, the cust or the vendor that they should use was in, was matching a demographic of power versus choosing another candidate that did not. Um, how should they make that decision? It, 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 should they always be, it sounds like thinking about if it's systematic, should it just be a categorical rule that your hiring should be demographically matching society or, yeah. or is there another history? Or, yeah. or, or whatever, whatever, like for example, I'll give you an example. Uh, at Girls Who Code, I decided uh, year one that I was going to have every classroom be 25% Asian, 25% white, 25% black, and 25% Latino. Every year. That was it. That was like, that was my, that was Rashma's rule, right? Of equality. 
And, you know, to me, and because of that, and I would, we would literally move around classrooms all the time. And we had tons of kids, you know what I mean? That wanted to be in our program. And so I, I, I actually do believe in quotas. And I would say, I do believe in goals, you know, and you have to be very intentional about, about, about this. But we just, I just think this idea that we live in a meritocracy, that everyone is starting from the same place is just not true. So how do you rectify it? How do you go back to equality? So for me, again, in our program, we would have tons of white and Asian girls apply because their mother knew about it from the New York Times or from reading this article or blah, blah, blah. And so, so, so I would, you know, so many of our black and brown girls didn't even hear about the program. So our recruitment efforts were targeted there. So they actually even had a shot to apply. And I will tell you after doing this for 10 years that I didn't give anybody anything like all the, all of them, whether they were black coming from a homeless shelter and Asian coming from a private school, when they got to our classrooms, they were equally competitive to go get a job at Facebook. So my point is, is that, but I gave them a shot. And, and I think we need to do that more. I just don't believe it when they say, well, I'm letting this, you know, this woman in and she's just not a, as good as this guy. And so it's just not true because we never question the meritocracy of the men. We just don't. We assume, right, that they are qualified, that they are worthy, right, of being in this spot. And I just think we have got to have a conversation about unearned privilege. Whoever has it, right? In this case, it's white and Asian men. In some cases, it might be an Indian woman, right? But we have got to talk about unearned privilege um, and stop feeling like we're giving somebody something and they're not prepared because then that then builds imposter syndrome. I tell this, I'm just going to tell you, like, you know, I was a girl that went to, sorry, go ahead. We're almost done. No, I want to hear it. But, and we're, we're, we're out of time, but, but, but I want to hear it. So please say it, but I just want to. No, I'm just that saying that I, as someone who went to state, who went to University of Illinois, that grew up in public schools in a working class, you know, family, you know, I finally got into Yale Law School three years. At, I mean, three, three, I mean, years and years and years after applying. And I remember I could not speak in my constitutional law class because I just didn't think I was smart enough. You know, I just didn't think that I belonged. You know, 10 years later, I was giving a speech between Warren Buffett and Bill Gates, you know, at the Microsoft Summit. And I remember them saying to me, like, you know, you are the only person that we gave this thought to because it's pretty intimidating to sit and give a speech in front of Bill Gates and Warren Buffett. And I remember thinking to myself, wow, I wish they gave me 15 minutes instead of 12. And I was like, how did I become that woman to that woman? And that happened because I've been in a lot of rooms and I've met a lot of people, a lot of powerful people. And I sometimes think, him? What? <laughs> He's got that job? Me and my ladies, we can run circle. You know, you know, so my point is, is that when you are actually surrounded by power and prestige and privilege, it actually allows you to squash your imposter syndrome and to recognize it. Wow. I've always been prepared. I've always been ready. I've always been qualified to be here. And that's all I want to say. The Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series is a Stanford eCorner original production.
The stories and lessons on Stanford eCorner are designed to help you find the courage and clarity to see and seize opportunities. Stanford eCorner is led by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program and Stanford's Department of Management Science and Engineering. To learn more, please visit us at eCorner.stanford.edu.